Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, really a, a chapter about our resurrection. But you'll see how closely the Apostle Paul ties together the two Easter's, our resurrection and Christ's resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 1152 in your Bible there. And I would like to read the entire chapter. It's quite a long chapter, but I would like to read the entire chapter. So 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. <coughs> now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so we believe. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testify against God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. 
Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps a weed or something else. But God gives it a body, just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Well, congregation, we've entitled the sermon this morning, Between Two Easter's.
between two Easter's. The Easter that we celebrate today, and only every Sunday, every Lord's Day, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, from the grave, but also our own Easter, our own resurrection from the dead. And you know that these two are tied so closely together. And the Apostle Paul ties them so closely together also in this passage. And that's why uh, our confessions do the same. For instance, in the Heidelberg Catechism, we read, How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the third reason given is, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. So those two are tied together so closely. The resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. And you're going to see that this morning also in the preaching of the Apostle Paul as he gives it to us here in this long chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. So let's consider this then. Uh, first looking at Paul's preaching and then looking at his questions. Will believers rise? Did Jesus rise? And then to make some points of application. So in the first place, Paul's preaching. And what a blessing it is, dear congregation, to have from the Apostle Paul himself the foundational truths of his preaching. Right? We often like to know how did so-and-so preach and how did this man preach. But now we can actually look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul himself because he tells us in verse 1, right? I make known to you, or I'm going to reveal to you, I want to show you, I want to teach you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand in, by which you are saved. And then he gives us, uh, really, uh, this is, and uh, uh, students of the Bible have often recognized in these verses, one of the first Christian creeds. The first Christian creed. And what is a creed? Well, a creed is a credo. And I believe. Right? If, if I come to you and say, if I come to you and say, well, why do you think you're saved? And you say, well, I believe in Christ. And I ask you, what do you believe about Christ? Right? The very next words out of your mouth would be, credo, I believe about Christ, this and this, right? And that, of course, is such an essential part of our faith. And it was such a foundational part of the Apostle Paul's preaching. And the Apostle Paul's faith. And so you see in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Okay, now there are many truths that we confess. One of them is in the first application there, right? When I hope to make a few comments about the millennium. There are other truths that we profess, but we say these are not the, at the center of our faith, right? They are truths about which Christians disagree. But Paul says these truths that I'm going to share with you now are of the first importance. These are the foundation of the house. The whole Christian faith is like saying resting upon these truths. These are the foundational, non-negotiable truths of the Christian faith. And he gives it to us. And this was probably a creed that was used in the early church. And Paul delivers it to them. Verse 3. I like that language. That's very interesting, isn't it? I delivered to you. It's almost like Paul is, is handing it down. He received it from somebody, and now he's handing it off to the next person. Right? Children and young people, you know, and when you do track meets, right, they have relay races, right, where one person hands off the baton to another guy, right, and so on. And now in the same way, you might say, Paul is taking that baton, and he's handing it down to the next generation. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. So, in other words, Paul did not come up with this on his own. These are not truths that Paul generated from his own mind. He received them 
from Jesus Christ. And if you look at the book of Galatians, you'll know that Paul received them directly from Jesus Christ. Paul spent time in the deserts of Arabia, where Jesus taught Paul directly, immediately, what the truths of the faith were. At any rate, now look at that creed as it's given to us in verse 3. He begins, And that the first truth of this creed is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So our Good Friday celebration right, is, is centered squarely on the first truth that Paul part, puts as part of his creed. I believe, right, credo, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then, line number two, or the second part of his creed, and that he was buried. And that he was buried. Now you might think to yourself, why would that be such an important part of the, of the creed? That Jesus was buried. It seems like kind of an inconsequential detail of the gospel record that Jesus was buried. But it's a very important part of the gospel record congregation because of the next line in the creed. So we have that he was buried as line number two. And then line number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So that middle line, that, that second line of the creed, that he was buried, is essential to the third one, right? Because we want, and Paul is very anxious to, that we know that Jesus' resurrection was not just a resuscitation. He didn't, like, kind of swoon in the grave, right? No, he was really dead. He really went into the grave and he stayed there three days, or part of three days. He was really dead. And his resurrection really is a literal coming back to life after he had been really dead. And again, our Heidelberg Catechism uh, catches on to that, you might say, right? And our instructors there have that question. Maybe you, you remember that question. I know as a young boy, I was wondering, what is this question? It seems so strange. Um, what is it now? It's, uh, why was he... I think it says, why was he buried? And the answer given is, to prove that he was really dead. And that's, of course, straight from 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus' burial was part of the one of those foundational truths of Paul's preaching to prove that he was really dead. So then, the third line given us there is that Christ died for our sin. Or the first is Christ died, that he was buried, and then third, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And notice how Paul always includes that line according to the scriptures. Right? Paul is always anxious to show that these truths are not something that came out of his own mind. So the resurrection is foundational to the apostolic preaching. These are articles of Paul's creed. Well, then we come to the to the second to the second point there. Will believers rise? Because now Paul really comes to the to really what he's what he's getting at in this chapter. And you see that in that question in verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So my friends, in the Corinthian church there was this issue which sounds a little strange to us, but let me explain. In the Corinthian church there were people who believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They were Christians. They had no problem with that. But they didn't believe that believers were going to be raised from the dead. That part of it they denied. They accepted the fact that Christ was going to be raised from the dead. But they didn't accept the fact, or at least they doubted it, that believers were going to be raised from the dead. Now for Paul, those two are so closely linked 
that you can see that basically from here to verse 19, he says repeatedly in so many different words that if believers are not raised from the dead, then that means Christ was not raised from the dead either. And if Christ was not raised from the dead, then the whole house comes crashing down. Then the foundation is rotten. And your faith is vain. I'm a liar, Paul says. He says it very explicitly, right? He says, I'm a fraud. Because my preaching is a lie. So Paul says, Christ is raised from the dead. You people believe that. And if Christ is raised from the dead, then you will be raised from the dead. Now why do the Corinthian believers uh, believe such a strange uh, thing that, they, that Christ was raised, but that they're not going to be raised? Well, my friends, there was this Greek philosophy back there called the Gnostic philosophy. Now the Gnostic philosophy wasn't really until much later in the church, but there were seeds of it already in the apostolic church. And already in the philosophy of a man like Plato, for instance, uh, who was many years before this was written, hundreds of years before this was written, that there was this idea that the body of a person, okay, our flesh and our blood, our body, our bones, our, our external, visible uh, part of our person was, uh, they had a very negative view of it. A very negative view of a person's body. And so to them, it didn't really sound like something so appealing to receive your body back. Right? They, they saw their body as something that dragged them down. Something that hurt. Something that got sick. Something that eventually would die. And so they didn't see the body as something, as a gift from God, as we would see it. They saw it as naked. They didn't really think all that was, that, uh, it was great to have your body back. In fact, many of them understood salvation to be losing your body. When I, when I throw off this earthly shell, then I'll, be, I'll, I'll rise to a new and a better kind of life. Now, we know, of course, that that is a terribly unbiblical understanding of our body. But that was the philosophy of the time. And no doubt some of this had already entered into the Corinthian church, which... Uh, you know where the city of Corinth is, right? That's right in the middle of Greece, right? It's a very Greek town. The Greek philosophy was strong there. And these people were not very excited about getting their bodies back. And so Paul is attacking this false philosophy by joining together these two Easters. He's saying there's, there's two Easters, but they're, they're basically one. And if Christ is risen, then we will rise. And if we will rise, then Christ is risen. And the two are, are inextricably bound together into one resurrection. So will believers rise? They will rise, Paul believes. And he ties that so closely to the resurrection of Christ. And he comes down to verse 20, to the third point here, did Jesus rise? Did Jesus rise? Now this is, of course, the question that we struggle with. In our own time, most people don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. They believe that the body of Jesus is somewhere buried in Palestine, even yet to this day. But now notice what Christ, or what Paul says here. And he says that he uses this illustration of the first fruits. You see that in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now what does that mean? What is that? Uh, to, how is that to be understood then? This first fruits. Well, in, in the harvest of those days, the first fruits would come at the very beginning of the harvest. And in the mind then of those people, the first fruits was the promise 
of the full harvest that was yet to come. Maybe it's not a perfect analogy, but I know when I was younger, then uh, my father, he still gets this even today, you know, he's, he's no longer strong enough to be able to do it. But every June, right, it was time to cut hay. And my, my, my dad would just get so uh, excited and, and agitated about getting the hay before it rained. And that was always called the first cutting, right, or the first fruits. Now, of course, we dreaded the first fruits because we knew the first fruits meant there would likely be a second cutting and if there was a good summer, a third cutting, right? And we didn't much care to haul hay. We didn't like that task at all. And so first fruits wasn't a very happy thing for us. <coughs> but here, Paul is using the first fruits in the sense of that when you see those the first fruits of the harvest come in, you know that the full harvest is going to follow. And so it's a hopeful thing. It's a promise. And it's a glad thing. And now Paul says, Christ is the first fruits. He's like that first cutting. And when we've seen Christ rise from the dead, and we believe it by faith, we know it to be a historically true fact, then we can take comfort that the full harvest will come, and that we also will be raised from the dead one day. Christ the first fruits in His time, but in due time, we also, after we die, will be raised out of that grave. And that's the full harvest. That's the illustration that he uses here. So you can see in verse 23 there, he sees an order. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, on Easter morning. Then, at Christ's second coming, after that, those who are Christ at his second coming, or at his coming, that means his second coming. In other words, all those who are believers will be raised with him. And will be giving, given an imperishable, right, or a body that is no longer subject to the pressures and the power of death. Right? And then in verse 24, then comes the end. So, Christ will rise. And uh, Paul, in a sense, sees it. Just as I said, he sees one Easter, even though there's two Easter's. He so also sees there to be one harvest, even though there's first fruits. And the full harvest, for Paul, that was just one harvest, one resurrection. Christ rose, and all those who are with him also rose. And those two are so closely linked together. Now, in terms of, of Jesus rising from the dead, Paul also can say, now we can't say this in our day, but Paul certainly can say this, that Jesus appeared to people. And that's in the beginning of that chapter, verses 5 and 6. That he appeared to people. And you can look these people up. You can even speak with them. Jesus was buried. He was in the grave. And there's even 500 people out there. Some of them are still living. That Paul said you can go speak with them. And you can confirm the fact that Jesus did really rise from the dead. In fact, so closely does Paul see these two resurrections as, as linked together. That really that is what motivates this this. Victory cry, this shout of victory at the close of the chapter. In those last verses where he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now you may say, Paul, isn't that a bit premature? But we haven't risen from the dead yet. Shouldn't we wait and see once whether it actually happens? There's a lot of people that have died and gone into the grave and are still there. They haven't risen yet. But for Paul, no. No. There's one harvest. And one Easter is born. Even though we live between the two Easter's. 
For Paul, there is just one. And that's why he can cry out, Oh, death, where is your victory? Because he's so certain. Because he knows that Christ goes from the dead. And if Christ goes from the dead, then we will rise from the dead. And that's why he already can break forth in this exalting, this victorious pride. Christ is risen, and therefore we are all risen too. For instance, in, uh, we know that John says in John 5, verse 24, that we have passed from death into life. Now when does that happen? That happens when we believe the gospel. Because when we believe the gospel, my friends, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are joined to Him. We become one with Him. And at that happy moment, says the Apostle John, we pass from death into life. And eternal life. I know we often think of eternal life as what's going to take place when we get to heaven. But no, eternal life, according to the Apostle John, is already begins when we are united to Christ by a true faith. And by that faith, we're joined to Christ. We, we move out of the realm of death into the realm of life. And that's why, really, uh, you can speak already of a resurrection from the dead already when we believe the gospel and when we are joined to Christ by a true faith. And now Paul is just reflecting on that same truth. And he cries out, Oh, death, where is your victory? Now you can imagine some Corinthian philosopher saying, What do you mean, where is the victory of death? Look at the cemetery. Those people are all laying there, Paul. There's death's victory. Those people couldn't overcome death. Whoever their God is wasn't able to bring them back to life, wasn't able to protect them from death. It appears that death is victorious. But for Paul, he sees it with the eyes of faith. And that's how we also need to see it. He sees it with the eyes of faith. And so he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? He challenges death. You might say he... Well, you know, people have this, this, this language, they throw it out, right? You, you challenge, you say, hey, you know, come on. And, and that's really what it is here. That's really what Paul is saying. He said, death, what, what is the best you can do? What, what is the, you know, how can you, how can you join me in a fight? Almost like Paul says, you're already a conquered foe, you're already defeated. Says Paul. Because we moved out of death and into life. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. And Christ, by His death on the cross, has cut it all down. And given us the victory. That's faith in the congregation. Strong faith on the part of Paul. And even though those cemeteries are full of dead people, laying in the grave yet, that Paul can say, For death, where is your victory? He sees death as a comfort for Well, let's make some points of application. In the very first point I'd like to make the congregation is a theological one. I don't really need to spend a whole lot of time on this. You know, it takes up quite a bit of space on that outline there. But I just want to point out to you uh, the, the, the teaching of this chapter as it pertains to our understanding of the millennium. Now you know that there are our fellow Christian believers who are pre-millennial. The congregation, I repeat that, our fellow Christian believers. These are good Christian folk. We love them. In fact, I can say that maybe you are pre-millennial. And that is fine. That is okay. I just want to confront you with some of the teaching of Scripture here. I have little interest in converting you to my position here. But we all want to subject ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God. And when we read 1 Corinthians 15, we read certain truths that seem to conflict. So in that chart that I gave you there, 
I assure you how the, the premillennialist will understand that there will be three comings of Christ. We share with them the belief in Christ's first coming, his death and his resurrection, what we celebrate on Christmas morning. Then it's also Christ's second coming. But then notice that in Christ's second coming, in the premillennial understanding, only the believers are raised from the dead. The unbelievers remain in the grave. The believers are raised at the second coming of Christ, and then they go into the millennium along with all the people who are still alive at that time, and they all go into this millennial period, this 1,000 year period, right, where the reign of Christ is going to be very pronounced, very strong. It's going to be a Christian era such as the world has never seen before. There will still be unbelievers. There will still be some hardship. There will even be death. But it's going to be a time of Christ's reign and prosperity as never before seen in the history of the world. Then after that 1,000 years is Christ's third coming when the unbelievers are also resurrected and turned into hell. The believers are brought into heaven and death is completely eliminated and eternity begins. Well, congregation, if you have your pen or pencil, I'd like you to circle that one, death eliminated in both columns there. Because that's really what I want to see from 1 Corinthians 15. When does that happen? When does God eliminate death? When are our bodies changed from mortal bodies that are sinking and failing and dying to imperishable bodies? Well, in the teaching of, 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 of 1 Corinthians 15, we find in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. That's Christ's first coming. For since by a man came resurrection, or for since by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as an animal died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then verse 23 says, But each in his own order, the premillennialists jump on this, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, so first Christ was raised. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, so the believers are raised at his coming, and, and according to the premillennialists. And then verse 24 says, then comes the end. Well, the premillennialists would say, then, after 1,000 years. You see the, the word then there? Then, after 1,000 years, comes the end. Now, I have to say already, congregation, I think you can sense it, that that is a bit of a strange interpretation it's possible it could mean that, but that's not the initial sort of first way we would understand that. It doesn't seem that Paul is saying that Christ rose, after that, the believers rose at his, at his coming, and then after 1,000 year period of millennial comes the end. It seems much more natural to understand it as then. In other words, when Christ comes again the second time, the believers are raised, then comes the end, the, the final end, and eternity will begin. Now that's, again, that, that could go either way. But what can't go either way is what we read at the end of the passage in verse 52. In this verse 52, we read that we're all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then we go into the 1,000 year millennium and people continue to die? Do you see a problem there? 
along with the, at least in terms of this passage, with the premillennial idea, right? That it teaches that people are still going to die, they're still going to be under the power of death, even in that 1,000 year period called the millennium. But Paul teaches that the second coming of Christ, the perishable, are going to be made imperishable. In other words, death is going to be defeated. It's going to be eliminated and, 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 and never going to trouble people again. But the premillennials go on to say that people will survive during the millennium. And they say death isn't defeated or eliminated until a third coming is the understanding of Christ. But that doesn't fit with the passage here, does it? Paul says in that in a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, at his second coming, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. Now, again, that is not uh, something that is uh, at the center of our faith. But we do want to submit to the teaching of Scripture, even in the minor things of our, our, our theology. And so I show you that at 1 Corinthians 15, it's, it's difficult to accept the premillennial understanding of the end times. And it's also difficult to accept the fact that, that in, in the premillennial understanding, there are really three resurrections then, right? Because there's Christ's resurrection, then there's the resurrection of believers at His second coming, then there's the resurrection of unbelievers at His third coming. But the Bible never separates the two resurrections of believers and unbelievers that way. It says that Christ comes, that unbelievers are raised, that believers are raised, and it doesn't give us this impression that there's that 1,000 years between them. Well, enough on that. The pre-millennial and the amillennial idea. Let's move then to the second application, which is much more to our point here this morning, and that is the first Easter points to victory. The resurrection of Christ, which is what I mean here by the first Easter, points to victory. Congregation on Friday, we gathered here, right? And we considered Pontius Pilate and his guilt, and how the burden of that guilt is taken away in the cross. And we look at the cross of Christ. We look at the bleeding Savior upon it. We hear him say, it is finished. We see his body broken and bleeding, taken off that cross. And what does all that mean? We stand here week after week saying that death is an atonement for our sin. But why? There were so many people crucified in those days. Even when Jesus was crucified, two other men were crucified on both sides of him. Who's to say that that, 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 that crucifixion in the middle was something significant? What is, it meant? What is the death of Christ? What does it mean for you and me? Many people die on crosses in those days. Why do we look at this one and say, that one is unique and special and significant? Well, congregation, that's because on Easter morning we come to a tomb. And it's an empty tomb. And the empty tomb points us back to the cross. And says that that cross was Christ's victory. And that everything that Jesus said that cross was, and we've considered some of those things in the Passion Weeks, that it was a ransom, that it was our substitute, that it was on behalf of our sin, that it takes away our guilt. All those things, you might say, are ratified before that empty tomb. It's as if God takes His stand and He stamps it as approved. Or this is, this is the genuine part. That cross is what Christ said it was. That is an atonement for our sins. 
You know, there's an old Puritan author named John Owen who wrote a book. And you know, many of those men, when they wrote a book, the title itself was a book. And, and the title of this, of this book was The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And the title went on after that day. The Death of Death Congregation. And that's for preaching this morning on an enemy too. That if you can think about death as a person, as an enemy, and that when Christ died on that cross, death, you might say, took hold of him. It got him. You might say, it, it had him down. And they went into the grave together. But on Easter morning, death dies. Because Jesus comes out of that tomb. And Mary and the disciples, John and Peter and the rest, when they come to that tomb, they look in, and there's nothing there. And that is such a preaching this morning, dear friends. That is such a sermon that comes to us on Easter morning. That everything that we understand the cross of Christ to be, a victory over death, an atonement for our sins and all the rest, it really is that. And, and God the Father Himself puts His stamp of approval upon that victory. A congregation, that means that if Christ rose from the dead, and if the cross is the death of death, then that means when we feel in our bodies death working. And I know there's, 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 there's people here in this congregation today who feel that more than many of us do. But you feel the seeds of death already at work in your body. Now the seeds of death are in every one of us. Some of us feel it more strongly than others. Some of us have come to a high age. Our bodies have grown weak. And we feel the power of death in our body. And we feel ourselves breaking down. We feel ourselves declining. You know, I, I know Judy wouldn't appreciate this probably, but I was so struck when I, when I stopped in to see Judy Center in the other day. Because there's a woman who feels her body breaking down. She knows that the time is coming close. She, she says it. She confesses it. Congregation, she does it from such a place of strength. And I don't mean to exalt Judy this morning, not at all. She wouldn't like that, and I wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like it. But it's her Savior. That even when her body is so broken that she can hardly get out of her chair anymore, her faith is clinging to a rock that can never be shaken. She's clinging to the victory of the first Easter. She's clinging to the truth of that empty tomb. And all that it signifies. And you know, it, it's, it, it, it is a solemn thing, congregation, to come into the presence of someone who's standing on the brink of eternity. And it's such a happy thing to stand next to one who has so much strength. And again, it's not about doing this morning, but it's about that empty tomb. Because that same strength can be yours. That when we live between the two Easter's, and when we feel, and, that, and that's part of what it means to live between two Easter's, is to feel death working with us. To know that our bodies are not going to last much longer. And yet to find strength in that first Easter, that there will be a second Easter. And that we too can experience the victory over death that Jesus has already preached to us in the empty tomb. Congregation, I urge you, I urge you to look with faith into that empty tomb and to find a strength there that is not your own. What a precious and happy thing that is 
especially for those of us who feel the sickness and the weakness in our bodies. That is a rock of ages that can never be shifted, can never waver. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I shall in no wise cast out. It's impossible. That's a victory. That's a victory. Maybe we don't always see it so clearly with our eyes, but I hope you can see it with your faith. And that you can say with Paul, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? That's what the empty tomb enables us to do. And congregation, in the last place, the first Easter points to a kingdom. It points to a kingdom that God is going to give to us one day. What kingdom are you chasing in this world, dear friends? What kingdom are you pursuing? I hope you're pursuing a kingdom. But I hope it's not a kingdom here. And I know we're busy. And it's good to be busy. But congregation, you better hold that kingdom very loosely. Because it can be taken from you in a moment. I have another quote that I want to read to you. Again, it's a, it's a bit longer, but I just love how this, this man puts these things. This is uh, Isaac Ambrose. I think I read a quote from him some time ago. But let me close the sermon by reading this. He says, Christians, what is the matter that we are so busy about this world? Why, look about you. Not one of these visible objects shall that day remain or have a being. Those houses wherein we dwell, those churches wherein we meet, this town, this country, this island, the man was from England, this island, and the seas and waters that surround it shall be all on fire and consumed to nothing. The sea shall be no more and time shall be no more. Or if we look higher, yonder sun and moon and stars shall be no more. That glorious heaven which rolls over our heads shall be rolled together as a scroll. And all the hopes shall fall down as a leaf falls down from the vine. And as a fallen fig from the fig tree. The heavens shall vanish away like smoke. They shall be battered into nothing. Alas, alas, what do we toil in all the day? And maybe all our life for a little of this little. What, what an expression of congregation. <clears throat> a little of this little. Almost nothing. You that have a hundred or two hundred or a thousand acres, if every acre were a kingdom, all will be at last burnt up. So that none should say, here was Preston, that's a city in England. Or here was London. Or here was England. Or here was Europe. Or here was the globe of the earth on which men thrive. Let others boast as they will of their inheritances. But Lord, give me an inheritance above all these disciples. Heaven shall remain when earth shall vanish. That imperial heaven, those seats of saints, those mansions above, prepared by Jesus Christ, shall never end. But for my riches, lands, possessions, movables, goods, real or personal, they will all end in smoke, in nothing. What? Wilt thou set thine eyes upon a thing that is not? Upon this, the primitive Christians took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. It was but a little loss before the time. And they knew in themselves that they had to have any better and an enduring substance. Oh, let this be our care. Here we have no abiding city. But oh, let us seek one to come, even that one that shall abide forever and ever. Dear friends, I have a kingdom. And you have a kingdom if you're a believer this morning. And if all 
thing you have is what's here. In your house, in your land, in your car, in your business, and so on and so forth. You are a poor, impoverished person. But with all that congregation, whether you have great or little, if you're a believer, you have a kingdom sure in the heavens that can never be taken from you. And the scripture says that no eye has seen. No ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. Congregation, Easter points to a kingdom. Nothing we build on this earth can hold a candle to the kingdom that is ours in glory. And so, congregation, that's how we should live. We should work. We should be busy. But always with an eye towards the kingdom that is coming. And to make that our focus, and to make that our real boast, this is what we're the most proud of. This is the kingdom that God has prepared for me. May God grant us that happy life upon the sun. For his name's sake. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before thee this morning to confess that we have been so busy about our earthly kingdom. And Lord, we're thankful for our earthly kingdom. We don't despise it. That too is the gift of your name. But Lord, help us not to set our heart upon it this, this morning. But help us to set our heart upon that kingdom which is to come. That kingdom which is eternal in the heavens, sure and steadfast, but which can never be taken from the believer. Oh, what a poor kingdom it is if all we have is if all we have is what we can lay hold of here upon this earth. The Lord the empty tomb preaches to us also this morning of an enduring kingdom, sure and steadfast in the heavens. Lord, I pray that you remember also those who this morning especially feel in their bodies the decline, the weakness, perhaps the progress of a sickness or a disease. Oh God, will you minister to them? Will you preach to them, Lord, of that empty tomb? That whatever may happen to their bodies, one day they will be given a new body. A body that is not subject to corruption or to decay. A body that is not under the rule of death, but a body that is characterized by life and eternal life. Oh, that we might cry out together as a church, as a congregation. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.